Today, the most popular topic in the news is the forthcoming inauguration of a new president. Who else will he pick for his cabinet? What changes can we expect when the new administration takes office after Inauguration Day? Should I rent my spare room to an unsuspecting inauguration goer? <laughs> They're renting them in Northern Virginia, by the way. Well, these are questions Americans ask every four years, and especially when there's a new president. The same was true 148 years ago when another president-elect from Illinois first burst upon the scene. It just so happens, coincidentally enough, that there's a new book on the subject. It's called Lincoln, President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln and the Great Secession Winter, 1860 through 61. And you can purchase a signed copy from the author in the shop after the lecture today. And you can take it home in a reusable bag. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that acclaimed Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer planned his latest book to appear when there would be a brand new president-elect. But it sure makes great, makes great timing for us to bring Mr. Holzer back to the VHS once again. Harold Holzer is the author or co-author of 30 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era. Many of them have won awards, including the coveted Lincoln Prize. He's senior vice president at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and he serves as co-chairman of the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. The commission, I'm sure, is in high gear as 2009 approaches. Mr. Holzer is certainly no stranger to the VHS. He's spoken here twice in recent years. If you were watching a PBS documentary uh, over the weekend, you may have seen him being interviewed about his book. It's incredibly timely and will make a super gift for the historian in your family. So please join me in welcoming Harold Holzer, who will speak to us on the topic, Lincoln, President-Elect. Thank you. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be back to this beautiful building and this beautiful city, especially on a day like this. Thank you. I always worry about winter travel. I guess it's, uh, we have a ways to go, which is nice. Uh, I have to tell you one um, story because we just heard about um, the uh, drive to rent rooms and homes and apartments and offices for, uh, for the inauguration. I just did, did a, um, a C-SPAN hour from the Willard in Washington. And the Willard is, happens to be, and I, I, this is not in sequence of today's talk, because I, I, by rights I should wait till the end, but I'm worried that I'll forget it, so I'm telling you now. <laughs> the Willard is the hotel where Abraham Lincoln and his family stayed for nine days uh, before the inauguration. They asked him to stay at what is now Blair House, interestingly, Montgomery Blair's home, and he decided he was now public property, so he should go to a public place. And moreover, they thought they could secure him better uh, at the hotel. There had been threats against him. Lincoln had... Parlor 6, it was called, which was a big receiving room, and uh, some you know, bedrooms that's, that spiraled out from that, I would say two or three bedrooms, for his boys, for his wife, and for himself. For that um, suite, for nine days, he got a bill for $765 total. Um, I say that because... Brian Lamb on C-SPAN was absolutely fascinated with the fact and said it over and over again during our interview with the Willard, which I thought was a little bit tricky because they had allowed us to do the interview in the Willard, in the lobby. $900 a night and a three-night minimum for this inauguration. 
And he said they are sold out. Now the final punchline to the story is that Abraham Lincoln left the Willard without paying his bill. <laughs> and it took, he finally got a sort of, a, I guess, a Dunning letter in, uh, in about uh, April saying, you know, embarrassingly saying, you know, Mr. President, we really would like the money. And he was an irritated Lincoln turned it over to his private secretary. And I think he's not on the, uh, the deadbeat list at the Willard. He actually did pay, pay the bill. Well, I'm, I'm aware that coming here uh, to this institution um, is a special challenge because there are so many experts from Richmond who have dealt with this period, including Nelson Lankford, who happily began his own book on Inauguration Day and left the period the four months before to me and to others. But um, I, I did the book. Yes, I did the book because I knew there would be a president-elect. Um, and I thought it would be, if I could time it right and get it done, and, and when you plan for you know, four or five years, four years actually, it's a little tricky. It's a bit of a challenge. But I, uh, I had no idea, nor did anyone else, I think, maybe except for Barack Obama, that he would be the president and that he would be such an enthusiast and a student of Abraham Lincoln and seems to be following in a playbook um, designed, um, I like to think by me, but really by Doris Kearns Goodwin in a way, although I will talk about some of her specific contentions and some of the comparisons that have been made a little bit later. Um, let me just talk a little bit about Obama and Lincoln because I may, someone has actually asked me to do a little book about that, and it's, and it's sort of interesting. We all know the obvious comparisons. Um, um, a, an Illinois lawyer with no demonstrable executive experience defeating the, uh, the senator from New York State who had been widely favored to win uh, the party nomination, the respective party nomination, and winning the White House and then turning around and asking that senator to be the Secretary of State. That's a pretty good parallel. And, um, what, what defines the 21st century and makes it quite different uh, from the 19th is that instead of two white men, we have a, an African-American man and a woman going through the repeat of history. So it's sort of fascinating. But there are lots of other f um, interesting parallels. And I, I, we, we, we can get to them in the question period. I was fascinated by two that almost no one has referred to. Um, one is that they were both, Obama and Lincoln, authors of best-selling books. Uh, that helped catapult them to national attention. Um, Obama's book, we all know. Lincoln, uh, I count as his bestseller, The Lincoln-Douglas Debates. And I give him credit, not only because he, half of the language in the book is his, the other half, obviously, Douglas's, but because Lincoln pursued the publication of that book personally. He kept a scrapbook version, annotated it, edited his remarks, uh, sent it to a publisher in Ohio, saw to its publication, and that was one of its biggest distributors. He loved giving it to people. Anyone who said, you know, make a new statement, tell us what you really think, he would say, it's all in this book. And he would give it to people, even Southern visitors to Springfield after the election. And here's one other interesting comparison. Both of these presidents-elect, actually um, President-elect Obama on the eve of his election, Lincoln on the eve of his inauguration, went back to states where they, to areas where they grew up, 
to, to pay a last visit of respect to the women who had raised them, each of whom was not the president-elect's natural mother. Senator Obama went back to Hawaii to bid a final farewell to his grandmother, who he knew he would never see again. And Lincoln, a few days before leaving for his inauguration, went back to the prairie on a series of trains. Uh, his trip probably took longer than the flight from Chicago to Honolulu to visit his stepmother, who had so encouraged him to read and so pushed his, and you know, said he was the best boy she ever knew, favored him above her natural children. Thinking this too would be his last visit to her, she was almost 80 years old. He was leaving for four years or, or eight, he didn't know. And as they parted, she took hold of his sleeve and, and said, I know I'll never see you again. I know they'll kill you. So it was a slightly different farewell, but of course it did turn out to be the last visit. And um, um, she did outlive him by four years, interestingly. Well, that sigh was good. You've encouraged me to write some of this down. But the subject, absent the, uh, the, pre the current president-elect's enthusiasm, is Lincoln as president-elect. And it begins that period uh, here in Virginia, one of the few southern states in which Lincoln is allowed to contend for the presidency. His name is on the ballot. Lincoln always said, he said it in New York at Cooper Union, that if he was permitted to contend, he would win votes in the South. Well, the fact is, in, in Missouri and Maryland and Virginia, we were talking about 1% and 2% of the vote. He was really demolished uh, in Virginia. There were 168,000 or so votes cast in this state in November 1860. Lincoln got 1,900 uh, of the votes. And using Virginia as a mirror of discontent uh, at the result, one newspaper called his win simply a calamity, likening it to John Brown's Kansas brand of fanaticism, cutthroats, and horse stealers. Uh, the Richmond Inquirer said this, Lincoln owed his election to the worst enemies of the South. He will now naturally and necessarily select his counselors from among them. Um, a Lynchburg judge rather dramatically resigned, he said, to give his job to any Lincolnite who wants it. It'll invite a little discussion of patronage in a minute. Um, secessionist sympathies, as I'm sure you know, were not expressed immediately and um, dramatically here in Virginia. It gave Lincoln some heart to know that there was an early expression uh, from the newspapers here in Richmond and elsewhere in the state that Virginians might take time to consider reacting too precipitously to the election of the first avowedly anti-slavery president in the nation's history. One newspaper, the Richmond Dispatch, warned openly that hot-headed young gentlemen might distort the problem. But at the same time, it was sort of cautiously pessimistic. We do not wait for a sign, the Richmond Dispatch said, meaning a sign of Lincoln's hostility to the region. The outrage perpetuated is great and cannot be wiped out by the failure of Lincoln to commit to an overt act, meaning even if he did not threaten the South directly, there was an implicit threat in the mere fact of his election. The truth is that Lincoln conducted a, a policy of what he referred to and many of his allies referred to as one of masterly inactivity. He would not 
criticized the South for the rumblings of discontent, even when they turned into secession movements and conventions. He would not attempt to conciliate the South directly by begging them to be patient, because he thought that would represent begging for the privilege of being elected to a post to which he'd been lawfully elected by the entire country. So he wouldn't be aggressive, and he wouldn't conciliate. When one Virginian um, asked for, um, reminded, wrote a letter to Lincoln, actually, saying, you really should give an assurance to people like us who are naturally pro-union and who need from you reassurances that you're not going to be hostile to the region. All Lincoln would say is he was reminded of the story of a little girl who begged her mother if she could play outside, and the mother said, no, you may not play outside. And she asked again, and the mother said, no. And she asked again, and the mother said, no. And she asked again, and the mother said, I have no choice. I have to give you a whipping. So she gave her daughter a whipping. The daughter stood up and said, now that I've been punished, I can certainly run out, right? <laughs> Lincoln said, I certainly won't chastise the South because they might run out like the little girl. And conciliate, he said, would be like begging for the privilege of election. Before I circle back in this odd manner to the main thesis of my book, I wanted to talk for a second about what's on everybody's mind and um, offer a little bit of a point of differentiation from this uh, trend of seeing in some of Obama's cabinet choices a, a purposeful replication of Lincoln's turning to a team of rivals in 1860. First, um, keep in mind that the idea of turning to the leaders of your party, whether or not they had been uh, active or passive candidates for your party's nomination that you ultimately won, was not a novel phenomenon in the mid-19th century. In fact, it was almost expected. It was traditional. The most famous and obvious case was that um, the first log cabin candidate for president, William Henry Harrison, exactly 20 years before Lincoln, was another dark horse candidate who unexpectedly beat Henry Clay for the Whig nomination. And once elected, of course, expected he must turn to Henry Clay to be Secretary of State. Henry Clay let it be known that it would be wise if Harrison made a pilgrimage to his home in Kentucky, which Harrison proceeded to do, whereupon Henry Clay said, thank you for coming. I wouldn't dream of taking the job. <laughs> That's how far this tradition had gone. So Lincoln, two weeks after his election, goes up to Chicago for his first breath of outside of Springfield, Illinois air after the election. Uh, and suddenly finds, finds himself the biggest celebrity in Chicago with receptions and photography sessions and dinners and lots of people begging for jobs and appointments. And Seward's people have said, um, maybe you can come to Auburn, New York after your trip and, and visit Mr. Seward at home. Um, he expects to be nominated for Secretary of State, although he'll certainly decline. So. Henry Clay. So Lincoln made it be known that he had absolutely no intention of going to Auburn, New York to ask Seward to, do, to take a job he was likely to decline. So Seward's people let it be known, well, now that you're going to Chicago and we know that your vice president, Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, whom you've never met, is coming to Chicago as well, we'd be happy to, Seward would be happy to go to Chicago. Lincoln very cleverly said, no thanks. I mean, not quite like that, but Seward was not invited to Chicago. So Lincoln put him in his place pretty quickly. 
Um, ultimately, of course, he asks him to be Secretary of State according to tradition. And according to tradition, Henry Clay tradition, Seward says no, then yes, then no, then yes. Ultimately, yes. Um, and they do a little dance about who's going to control the rest of the appointments to the cabinet. If Hillary and Barack did that dance, it was in private. And ironically, it was in Chicago, because this time the president-elect did summon the candidate for, pres for a secretary of state to Chicago. But it was all done amazingly uh, in sort of a cloak and dagger way. We never got to see any of it. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. So A, the team of rivals tradition was very strong in the mid-19th century. It wasn't particularly novel. And, you know, Webster served with Fillmore and... Uh, uh, Lewis Cass served with uh, Buchanan or Pierce, and so these leaders of the party who were denied the nomination often served in the top cabinet spot. It was tradition. Besides which, if you were a senator and you gave up your Senate seat to be in the cabinet, it was as good a chance as not that you'd be returned to the Senate, because in those days the legislatures chose the senators. And even Simon Cameron, arguably Lincoln's worst choice for the cabinet as Secretary of War, was sort of disgraced banished to St. Petersburg, Russia, as minister, came back and you know, was re promptly reelected by the state's Republicans to the United States Senate and served well into the 1860s as a senator again. So they didn't have to worry about giving up their seats in the same permanent way that we expect um, Hillary Clinton and uh, Joe Biden, obviously, not to serve in the Senate again. Okay, team of rivals. The other widespread belief that I think is wrong, and I devote a good part of my book to puncturing this myth, is the idea that Lincoln, after winning that election and ending his day by saying, may God help me, may God help me, then going home and famously, according to legend, waking up his wife and saying, Mary, we're elected, because in those days the women were not with the men when these news came in, um, that he too went to bed, separate bedrooms again, that was their thing, and wrote a card, and on this card were all of the names of the people who he would ultimately appoint to the cabinet, except for Norman Judd of Illinois, who he ultimately decided shouldn't serve because Lincoln represented Illinois and he didn't need another Illinoisan. Well, I don't think there's much to this story, that he made the decision right away. Actually, he told the story later in the White House to his Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, who wrote it in several books, and other people picked it up. David Donald picked it up. Doris Goodwin picked it up. It's generally in the literature that Lincoln decided on day one who his cabinet was going to be and stuck with it and you know, went through some permutations of indecision or, or second-guessing himself, but then he ultimately turned to these people. I've, I've actually, I think I'm unique in having held this little card in my hand. Um, because, number one, it's undated. Number two, I'm not even sure it's in Lincoln's handwriting. Um, it doesn't look like Lincoln's handwriting to me, and I've looked at it very carefully, and he usefully wrote the name of some of these cabinet members, especially Chase and Cameron, over and over again in these tabulations he kept of who is supporting them in the Senate. And he had a unique way of making the letter C. It never varied. And this is not like those Cs. So I have my doubts that he wrote it. Besides, I found in Springfield, Illinois, a cache of letters from Gideon Wells' friends from around the country begging Lincoln to appoint him as New England's representative to the cabinet. If Gideon Wells 
could be so easily assured by Lincoln later that he was first his first and only choice, why in the world had he mounted such a, an unending campaign of influence and, and lobbying to get the job? And if you look at the record, there were lobbyists for and against Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania for the War Department, for and against Salmon P. Chase of Ohio for the Treasury. The fact is Lincoln looked for balance in two ways. Just as today um, gender and race and ethnicity play such an important role in cabinet selection, in Lincoln's day it was all about two things, geography and for the new Republican Party, which really had no real roots, political origins, political roots. He had to balance former Democrats and former Whigs, who were now part of the Republican coalition. Lincoln was a former Whig. His vice president was a former Democrat. He had former Democrats and former Whigs in the cabinet. And regional, terribly important. He had someone from Ohio, from Pennsylvania, from New York, he had a New England representative, and it wasn't always going to be Wells. He was thinking of uh, Charles Francis Adams. He was told Adams has a much better name, and he has a lot more money. Uh, that was an interesting speculation. Uh, couldn't decide on Indiana. Uh, Schuyler Colfax or Caleb B. Smith. He got lots of letters about both of those. But here's an, the important part that I think historians have generally left out, and that's how long Abraham Lincoln kept alive the idea that a Southerner not a Missourian or a Marylander, but a, a Southerner could be a member of the cabinet. He yearned to include a Southerner. He thought, perhaps naively, perhaps unrealistically, that the inclusion of a Southerner might um, forestall secession, especially in the Upper South. So he looked to North Carolina. Um, he looked to an ex-Virginia congressman named John Minor Botts for the Navy Department, so much for for Gideon Wells. He looked for another Virginian, Robert E. Scott. He even looked for a time to, well, he looked to his best friend, Joshua Fry Speed. Meeting him in Chicago, he asked him, Speed, what are your pecuniary circumstances? Speed, who had known him longer and better than almost anybody, said, I know what you're trying to say, Mr. Lincoln, but I can't leave my, my business and my farm and my enterprise, interestingly, a slaveholding enterprise. He wanted Speed from Kentucky not only because he feared not knowing anyone in Washington, because he wanted a Kentuckian to keep Kentucky in the Union. He even opened a correspondence with, well, with John A. Gilmer of, uh, of uh, North Carolina and also with Alexander Hamilton Stevens of Georgia, from whom he, he, um, he actually stole some pro-Union language from, apple of gold and, and uh, a picture of silver from the Bible, uh, which Stevens had written to him about how important the Declaration and Constitution were. And he thought seriously of Stevens. And ultimately, as we know, Stevens opposed Georgia's secession. But then after Georgia did secede, he became vice president of the Confederacy. And he and Lincoln didn't see each other until their famous peace conference here in Virginia in March of 1865. Virginia played a, an interesting role here. Um, Lincoln is conducting this policy, as we say, of masterly inactivity, of silence. He will not speak. He will not conciliate the South. And he's busy with cabinet selection. He's besieged with threats. Um, no president-elect ever received more threats to his safety than Abraham Lincoln did. 
They came daily in the mail. They came in the form of warnings from people who visited. Letters uh, warning that his ink would be poisoned. His dumpling would be poisoned by a spider. Um, pictures of him hanging in effigy. Pictures of secession ordinances with obscene writing on them. Um, he thought for a time of leaving early and secretly to Washington and even considered briefly taking the oath of office in Springfield, Illinois to establish himself perhaps with army protection uh, on his travel to Washington. In the end, he became the most closely protected uh, president-elect who ever journeyed to, to Washington. I'll get to the journey in a moment, but I'll tell you about the protection as long as I, as long as I brought it up. Um, he had quite a few interesting characters with him. General John Pope, who became a Union general. Um, Colonel Hazard, I like that name. You know, if you're going to travel with someone who's going to protect you, Colonel Hazard is good. <laughs> Colonel Ellsworth, who many of you know, later became the first Union officer killed in the Civil War when he tried to take down the flag at a hotel, a, confed a Confederate flag from a hotel in Alexandria. My favorite was Colonel Bullhead Sumner who was so named because in a previous battle, a bullet had bounced off his head without doing any damage. <laughs> that's, that's a man you want to walk right in front of you during, <laughs> during your trip. So some of the myths that I exploded, I hope I exploded, were the cabinet selection myth, very briefly, patronage. We all have this image of Abraham Lincoln as this be bedraggled, besieged man who is overwhelmed with people who selfishly want political jobs. Day and night they come to him, hanging on his sleeves, begging him for political positions, um, and making his life genuinely miserable. There's the famous story of the time he contacted smallpox at, uh, at Gettysburg and took to his bed with the outbreak of the disease, and Lincoln said, send all the office seekers in here while I've got smallpox, because now I have something I can give everybody. <laughs> but the truth is, this is what he was, I don't know, paid for. This is what he was nominated for. This is what he was elected for. And he was very angry that he was not going to be able to take, when he said he's angry that people are going to deny me taking office, he didn't say taking office, he said taking offices. He wanted to appoint Republicans in the South in the North. He wanted to drive the Democratic Party out of the federal bureaucracy. That was his job. That's what he was elected to do, to reward the loyal campaigners who had, who had done work for him, to establish a beachhead in the South that could build a new political organization. Um, it, it took him a long time to withdraw from his draft inaugural address the idea that he was elected to appoint postmasters uh, and, and port managers in the South, and he intended to do it. He took it out later. But so I think one of the things is that while he had a lot of work to do with secession and, and, and compromise and um, uh, patronage, patronage was his job. He took it very seriously. He spent a lot of time on it. He made a lot of appointments. He made just about all of the changes that he could have made by himself according to law. And in the end, he lucked out in a way because by the time he submitted names great and small for federal jobs, enough Southern senators had absented themselves from Congress so that there was no chance of there being challenges to the people he submitted um, to Congress for confirmation. 
perhaps a tactical error, interestingly, because you, you hear in the correspondence the voices of many Northerners telling Lincoln the fact that so many, that, uh, that Jeff Davis and others have left the Senate means that we're going to get Chase and Seward confirmed very easily. The other problem Lincoln had that I think makes him more like, um, more like a Bush versus Gore election than an Obama versus McCain election is that he went to Washington still not 100% certain that he would be elected president of the United States. He was a minority president, as we know, with not even 40% of the popular vote, but a clear electoral majority. But there were still rumblings that the votes of the various state electors, which was to take place on December 6th, I think we're approaching that time now. Do we all realize that the important election is going to take place in a few days when the electors go to their various state capitals and say, here I am, I'm the guy who was one of the electors for Obama, and I'm ready to affirm that I'm for Obama and count me in and send my name to the Electoral College. Lincoln was worried that it would be disrupted. In New York, my state, I'm ashamed to report, they were, there was a lot of rumbling about what we know that our you know, 20 electoral votes were for Lincoln, but let's vote for somebody else so that we can throw the vote to the House of Representatives so we don't have to face this crisis. Lincoln was afraid the Electoral College itself, whose votes were counted in February while he was scheduled to be on the road, would be disrupted by enemies of the Union in Washington. Uh, a Virginia named Winfield Scott said, I am going to send some howitzers to, to Capitol Hill, and I will blow up anybody who tries to disrupt, and I will blow them onto the other side of the Potomac. That managed to, to chill the waters. Lincoln was very, was very nervous about these occasions. It made, again, for this secession winter to be one of the most perilous in the history of this country. I'm reminded about Capitol Hill, about one more thing about patronage. I had so much fun reading the letters from kooks who wrote to Lincoln demanding jobs. And I'm saying that he, he enjoyed, or at least fulfilled the duties that he was expected to fulfill in appointing people. But he also had his share of nutcases who wrote to him and said, I mean, people would write things like, I've been working very hard for 20 years, I would now like a job where I don't have to work at all, please hire me, things like that. <laughs> Plus a change in government, right? Um, he got, uh, almost everyone he, he met and talked to turned out to have a relative. He, he went, as I say, he went back to see his stepmother on the farm. He stayed in the home of a nice state senator named Thomas Marshall who put him up. A few days later, he gets a letter from Thomas Marshall. Um, here is the list of people I would like you to appoint to federal jobs. Um, Orville Browning is one of his uh, loyal friends from Illinois. Um, and he gives Browning the, the honor, a little bit later, of reading his inaugural address and making comments about it. And uh, they meet. I found a wonderful report. That they met in the basement of the old state capitol where they spoke briefly. Actually, Browning writes this in his diary. That's a euphemism. That's a gentleman's way of writing that because the basement of the old state capitol, same building where Obama announced his candidacy, by the way, the basement of the old state capitol is the men's room. So they meet in the men's room, and while they are otherwise engaged, Browning says, I have some cousins that I need you to appoint. You know, I know you want me to read your inaugural address, but let's get to business here. You know, you've got to do something for me. Um, but my favorite of all of, oh, he got a letter from a guy who said, um, 
At 12.01 on this November day, my son was born. We named him Linky. Um, I think he's the first person born under your presidency. In those days, they sort of muffed the president-elect ship in the presidency. And I, I know that you understand that we honor you just because we're so proud to have voted for you. Um, enclosed are, are my rates for life insurance, which I certainly think you should be carrying as you go off to Washington. And they, he kept, Lincoln kept the brochure with all of the rates and a picture of the guy. My favorite of all, and I know I'm countering my own argument that he liked doing this, but they're such great stories. My favorite job-seeking letter of all was from a man who writes, um, I would like to be Secretary of State. Now, I know you've, the rumors are that you're going for Mr. Seward, but I really would like to be Secretary of State. And I promise I will protect you in Washington when you come to your inauguration. I will bring seven cannon to the inauguration and make sure that no one disrupts it. When you're giving your speech, look into the crowd. I will paint the 30-second hair of my right eyebrow red, and you will be able to know who I am. <laughs> Sounds like a truly gifted diplomat. <laughs> I'm going to end with two things, two factors, and then left open up to questions. And I'm sorry this is sort of a stream of consciousness way of doing it, but I wanted to emphasize Virginia for my talk to all you wonderful Richmond folks today. Um, I guess I'll end on a sort of a sour note about Virginia, and that is that, um, you know, we all worry about what lame duck um, administration is going to do to solve problems. That's the question I'm asked most, I guess, when I do these television things is, you know, is Obama following the Lincoln tradition? Well, not exactly. Lincoln didn't hold a press conference every day. Um, he, um, he did go to see Buchanan just as Obama went to see Bush. Mrs. Lincoln went to see Buchanan's niece just as, as uh, Michelle Obama went to, uh, just as Mary Lincoln went to see Harriet Lane. Um, did I do that right? You get the idea. Um, but um, the lame ducks were in full throttle during the four-month secession winter. The Senate initiated a compromise plan that would have extended slavery all the way to the Pacific Coast and perhaps perpetuated it for an incalculable amount of time, maybe 50 years. The House of Representatives and the Senate each had separate committees that proposed just that, proposed legislation that would have forbidden the Congress from ever dealing with the subject of slavery where it existed. Lincoln had to damp down enthusiasm for those compromises, much as they might have saved the Union, he thought only temporarily. He wrote letters that said things like, the tug has to come, and better now than ever, or hold fast as with a chain of steel. So I think this is an argument against the idea that he was a passive president-elect who didn't understand the nature of the crisis. I think he understood that the crisis was coming, and he was not going to sacrifice uh, the idea of restricting, curtailing, and ultimately ending slavery to save the nation as it was for another generation. We may disagree with his decision, but I don't think it was an accidental decision. I don't think it was a passive decision, as much as Lincoln liked to appear passive, as if he was being controlled by events. The biggest challenge of all might have come from a Virginian. Lincoln had actually had five ex-presidents operating, none of whom liked him particularly. It wasn't easy. Van Buren and Fillmore and uh, Pierce. But perhaps the most troublesome of all was John Tyler, the accidental president whose 
I guess his greatest accomplishment was having something like 19 children with two wives. But he was asked to chair a peace convention. In addition to House and Senate compromises, a convention of elderly statesmen gathered at the Willard, same hotel where Lincoln was going to stay, and considered the same sort of compromise. They thought if they could bless it with former leaders, that it would have a better chance of being adopted as in the form of constitutional amendments. Lincoln had to damp that down, too. He actually had to come face to face with John Tyler, a slaveholder, a Virginian, ultimately a secessionist, and a, uh, a representative in the Confederate Congress. He had to face him down at Willard's, but he had to deal with the fact that there were at least three bodies of people, three bodies that were working to take the decision-making out of his hands, even though he had just been elected to lead the nation. With all of this going on, with the threats, with the patronage, with the cabinet selection still unsettled, with the peace convention continuing to meet at the Willard, with lame duck Congress attempting mischief of its own, even in the name of nation saving, Lincoln undertook the most public inaugural journey in the history of the country, delivering 101 speeches over a 1,300-mile journey that took 11 days, stopping in city after city. I think, to me, the climax comes in Philadelphia. His speeches were a little bit disjointed at first. They got much more meaningful when he got to the areas that had been engaged in the American Revolution, the original colonies. When he was in Albany and New York City and Trenton, New Jersey, where he saw the Hessian barracks, and particularly in Philadelphia, where he saw Independence Hall. Fireworks lit up the sky to greet him, and then he gets a uh, note that he must meet Alan Pinkerton, the famous detective, who tells him that a death threat is awaiting him in Baltimore. And Pinkerton convinces him that he's going to have to take precautionary action if he expects to live through the travel and get to Washington alive. In fact, he should pack up and leave immediately and take a night train to Baltimore and then to Washington. Lincoln says, I'm scheduled to raise the flag in Philadelphia tomorrow and then to go to Harrisburg to meet with the new governor. And I will not cancel either of those appearances. So he goes to Independence Hall. He raises one of the first 34 star American flags with Kansas newly added as the 34th state. And then memorably says, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than remember it. Those who were at the meeting with him the night before understand that he's been particularly steeled and maybe even become more anxious because of the threat he heard about. He ultimately does go through Baltimore at night. He's maligned, criticized, mocked, I think probably with some justification, but not enough to have suggested that he follow the co a different course because there were threats made to his railroad car when the train came in. Oddly enough, he allowed his wife to ride in the schedule that he abandoned and Hannibal Hamlin, which I've never quite understood and have not figured out. And then comes the days of image reclamation. He does a brilliant job in Washington of restoring his shattered image. You know, it's interesting. He entered the, the capital of his country in disguise and was mocked for it in much the same way four years later that Jefferson Davis allegedly fled in disguise or was captured in disguise. They're tough things for leaders to get through in terms of their reputations. The cartoonists go after them. With Lincoln, they pictured him in a Scotch cap and a military cloak, uh, an outfit that the New York Times reported he had worn without any knowledge of that, by the way. I have my own theory about why they did it. 
Um, he gets to Washington, and rather than hide, he makes a public speech from the window of his hotel. He goes to church with Seward. He knocks on the door of the White House and visits Buchanan. He gets his picture taken, which is very smart, handsome, dignified photographs, restoring his image as a statesman that one could trust. He goes to the House of Representatives and walks into a session and greets the members of Congress. He goes to the Senate. He even goes to the Supreme Court to pay a courtesy call on Roger B. Taney, the man who he had mocked himself over the years in regaining his political footing in Illinois, called him Roger. Um, he made an unbelievable image recovery in the space of about seven or eight days that he had left before his inauguration. The inauguration itself was tense. Cavalry officers rode alongside his carriage and spurred the horses intentionally so the horses would continuously rear so that no one could possibly have a clear shot at Lincoln as he rode. That's how dangerous they deemed that ride to be. In those days, the inaugural parade came first, then the speech, then the swearing in, which was great for me because I wanted to end on the moment he becomes president. He doesn't become president until after the parade and after the address. There's a float with 34 women on them, each representing a state, beautifully costumed. Some wise guy writes, typically, by the time the float had gone two blocks, the women were fighting with each other, <laughs> symbolically, just like the United States they represent. But he lived to give a remarkable and conciliatory inaugural address that he had brilliantly shown to other people to get input, not just William Seward, famously, who added the conciliatory ending, which Barack Obama quoted when he won his election, by the way. He thinks he was quoting Lincoln. Uh, Passion may have strained, but must not break our bonds of affection, he said in, to the crowded Grand Park. He was actually quoting Seward as edited by Lincoln. So maybe now he, if all things are equal, he should ask Hillary to write the ending of his, <laughs> his inaugural address. But he takes the oath after this wonderful conciliatory ending, appealing to the better angels of our nature. And then, just as Election Day in Springfield had been sounded by cannons, which were fired off to wake people up to get them to vote, this barrage of artillery with the traditional 21-gun salute erupted on Capitol Hill. And I picture Lincoln standing there at the crest of those steps that are no longer used for inaugurations. We've moved to the other side, the other portico now, looking out past the statue of George Washington, which stood there then, perhaps he could even see all the way to the Potomac and imagine the other side of Virginia, thinking that these will probably not be the last cannon fire that erupt during my administration. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm told we have, we have like 15 minutes for questions if you'd like to ask anything. First one is always the tough one. Yes? What was the most significant change in Lincoln's style of behavior and thinking in the years from his inauguration to the years of his death? The question is, what was the most significant change in style and thinking, both thinking. style or thinking, between um, his inauguration and his death? Well, obviously, in, in thinking, it's, it's um, after pledging not to interfere with, with slavery where it existed, he saw a road or 
you know, this is, of course, the source of endless debate, either saw a way to act against slavery or thought that that was a useful way to win the war and preserve the Union. That's another debate, but that's obviously the biggest change. Um, the man who argued for the sanctity of the Constitution also took um, great liberties with the Constitution, and by liberties, I don't mean, li I mean the reverse of liberties, of course, um, using executive power in a way that no president had before, and some argue none has since. Um, in style, one thing I've always been interested in is, um, is another myth, and that's the myth of Lincoln as an orator. Um, not that it's an undeserved uh, tribute to him, but Lincoln's uh, stature as an orator stemmed from his, almost always from his pre-presidential um, performances, as has Senator Obama's. But unlike the current presidents, candidates and office holders of that period were not expected to speak. And Lincoln, in fact, once he finished his New York and New England tour in the winter of 1860, did not make any speeches at all during the entire presidential campaign. Stephen Douglas made a tour through the South and was lampooned just for campaigning. And presidents were expected to give inaugural addresses, send an annual message to the Congress without appearing there personally to, to deliver them. That, that tradition had been ended and would not be restored, I think, until Wilson restored it. What one needs to remember is that all of the great speeches of Lincoln's presidency were total aberrations. And he agonized about whether to go to Gettysburg, for example. He didn't think it was necessarily proper. And I think the idea that he was invited not to give the dedicatory speech, but to give a few appropriate remarks, um, encouraged him that he would not uh, uh, counter propriety. So I think the change in style was, was to allow himself to be a more public president than he had expected. And uh, whether that meant posing for artists and sculptors and photographers, or delivering speeches. There is an extraordinary speech that you'll be reading about soon that Lincoln made a, a night or two after his election to a rally outside of the White House. He appeared at a window in the private quarters, opened the window, someone opened the window, and he read aloud from four pages this wonderful speech in which he said, "If we, to, be, to exist as a country, and I paraphrase, we must have free elections. If we had not had the election, the rebellion could already have been said to have ruined us. And this manuscript has been in a private collection. Lincoln gave it to a New York congressman. We take very good care of our stuff. We have the Emancipation Proclamation, the one that he donated to Chicago. You can imagine what happened to that one in the fire. We, New York had took really good care of the Emancipation, the first draft, and of this speech. But the, what's amazing about it is not only that it's in such pristine condition, Lincoln wrote it in huge letters. So it's like the equivalent of writing a speech and using 16-point type on your computer, which I do now, to blow it up so I can see it. And it's just an amazing document. So there's another example, speeches from his window, which he would never have imagined doing. He began to do with great regularity. That's a long answer, but anyway. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sort of, I still have a soft spot for Mary, I, I should say. I think she's gotten a bad rap in recent years. I think, you know, she was a troubled person, but she was extremely smart and she was extremely helpful to him on the way up. 
But every piece of evidence I uncovered um, from this period, from election night to inauguration day, speaks to the segregation of women from the active sphere of what's going on. Um, she's always in a ladies gallery. She's never riding with him to the hotels when they get there. She's never in the parades with him. She's not in the inaugural parade with him. She goes first. She's not in the first carriage. And, we, and I found that you know, the, the order of processions in every city. She goes off with her son. He's with the mayor or the governor of the state that he's in. Um, the only time they spent together on all of election night was at an ice cream saloon refreshment gathering in, for which she had been one of the ladies on the committee. And they sat together in a banquette for about 20 minutes. And then he goes off back to the telegraph office, and she goes home. And as I said, he actually had to wake her, supposedly twice, to get her to wake up to tell her the news that he had been elected, so he told his friends. Now, after that, she begins this to learn that she's going to get to spend even less time with him, not more. We don't know the pillow talk. We don't know the dinner talk. We know that he's starting to work astonishingly long hours. Breakfast was usually their time because Lincoln was not an early riser, interestingly. He didn't like to get up at 6 he liked to hang out and have breakfast with his family. That might have been the only time they were together. Mary decides that she is going to be engaged in patronage, in recommending her family for jobs. No Lincoln, no Lincoln or Hanks ever got a job, but lots of Todd's got jobs. Um, her cousin Lizzie goes with them to Washington, and uh, she expects to be made postmaster of Springfield. She wasn't. Um, Lockwood Todd, one of her cousins, uh, is, gets a federal job. Uh, Ninian Edwards, her brother-in-law, who, was, uh, who was, uh, owned the home in which the Lincolns were married, got uh, a military job and embarrassed Lincoln and had to be transferred later. Um, but she went to New York on a, sorry to disappoint you, a shopping trip to open accounts with dressmakers. And, but wherever she went, she, she talked about politics. And she talked about Norman Judd, who was the Illinois aspirant to the cabinet. She said, Lincoln, should, my husband shouldn't appoint him. She was overheard saying, the only reason William Seward is, secretary, is going to be Secretary of State is because we owe it to him. He doesn't deserve it. That was written about in the paper. She got her first dose of what it was like to speak out of turn. And it was just, you know, it was a sexist society. But I think even now, Michelle Obama would not say Hillary is an idiotic choice. I mean, you're not going to hear that. So she was not exactly... She was not prudent, as the first President Bush would say. And then I'll end this sad report with before leaving. And by the way, they didn't even leave on the same train. This is not well known, because a lot of the pictures and the movies show them together, whether it's Raymond Massey and Ruth Gordon or whoever, uh, Sam Waterson or Mary Tyler Moore. They didn't leave together. Mary went off on a different train, and they met in Indianapolis, supposedly for security reasons. Again, the spheres are widening. But after Lincoln left his uh, office at the state capitol, he opened up an office downtown and spent much more time at home. So uh, uh, someone who was after a job went to his office to seek a job and was told the president-elect is at home. And he said, well, what the heck, I'll go knock on the door. He knocked on the door, he was admitted, and he found Lincoln um, sort of sitting in a darkened parlor, looking very morose. And he said, oh, excuse me for interrupting. He thought maybe he was napping. And then he practically tripped over this prostate figure, prostrate figure on the floor, and it was Mary, face down on the floor. And he looked at Lincoln and said, I'm terribly sorry. 
I'm, I'm inventing some of the words, but I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Lincoln. And he said, oh, don't worry. She's, she's all right. It's just that she wants one of her friends to become the commissioner of the Port of New York, and she's decided she's not going to get up until I say yes. <laughs> we have two eyewitness accounts to that, so. Okay. Yes, there are two back there. It's... Well, the fact is, he did, with Hunter and Pope and and um, and um, um, uh, Ellsworth and Hazard uh, and Ward Hill Lamon, his huge, beefy law partner, law colleague, who was almost as it was bigger than he actually. He had a, a an unprecedented a group of people around him, um, and was met by local police and soldiers at at many of the stops where the train um, arrived. It didn't stop crowds from at one point crushing in so close that um, one of them suffered a dislocated arm. I can't remember which of the military officers was actually injured in the crush. But it was nothing. Buchanan had nothing. He just went with his, you know, just took a train from Lancaster to Harrisburg to Washington. And uh, in that time was menaced uh, in Baltimore himself, which is something that they told Lincoln. If it had happened to a doe-faced Democrat, imagine what would happen to you. So it was never, and of course, you know, he was, you know, we read a lot about how Lincoln was famously averse to security precautions as president, and he did walk the streets occasionally by himself, but he did have soldiers around him a lot of the time. And there was one in the back. Yes? Could you talk about your theory about why the New York Times described that disguise as a Scottish military uniform without any evidence of what that disguise is? Yes. Thank you. I, I'll pay you what I promised to pay you afterwards for <laughs> asking the question. Um, okay, here's my theory. I have no evidence. William Howard the New York Times correspondent, gets on the train with Lincoln in Springfield, goes all the way to every stop, 11 days. It's not easy. I don't know how many people slept in a room, three, four, not great accommodations, not great seats on the train. Lincoln is in these gorgeous railroad cars, but the press doesn't get that. And then he goes with him to Harrisburg, and of course he's responsible for writing the report about the final leg of the journey. So he wakes up uh, in Harrisburg after the dinner, Lincoln left a dinner early, but he had no reason to believe he was leaving town. So the next morning, he wakes up and says, OK, w are we ready for our rendezvous? This is going to be exciting. I'm making this part up, but you know what I mean. This is what he must have said. And they said, oh, uh, Lincoln left. We spirited him out of town, and he'll be in Washington. He's in Washington now. You just don't, he just arrived. And Howard, I mean, what is he supposed to do? He's responsible to the New York Times. He's the embedded reporter. <laughs> and he files the report that Lincoln donned a disguise. Now, in fact, he might have been told that Lincoln wore a slouch hat that he had been given in New York, a low-brimmed hat, and a shawl. He said it was a scotch cap and a military cloak. Okay, here's my theory. Pinkerton is from Edinburgh. He's a Scottish cop. He's a detective. That's his little euphemism for Pinkerton, the scotch cap, scotch cop. The military cloak, as in cloak and dagger, is Ward Hill Lamon, who went with him too. These are the two people who went with him. They didn't know about the lady who went, because they were afraid to tell Mary about this. 
The military cloak is Lamon because Lamon has been elected a colonel of Illinois volunteers right before the inaugural journey starts. Everybody's making fun of him because he's not a real military man. So he's a military cloak. That's just, I think that he did it to stick it to Lincoln, to say, you leave me behind and I'm going to torture you for life with this description. It's just my theory. <laughs> not a bad one, though. Do we have time for one more? One more. Yes. Lincoln took an oath of office on the Bible. Did Lincoln take his oath of office on the Bible? Yes. Not with Mary holding it, but with Roger Tawney um, holding it. Trembling, they said. Shaking the Bible. Well, I know the whole, the whole theory of, well, of whether the Bible sanctions slavery or stoning or, or, or those kinds of things and what Lincoln made of it. I mean, he obviously uh, believed more in Leviticus and proclaimed liberty to all, uh, to all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof uh, and um, ended his life being celebrated in portraiture with that verse beneath many of the pictures uh, of his literally showing his ascent to an afterworld that he now dominated, at least in the culture. Thank you.